The Tom Woods Show, episode 1816. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Well, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I was out of town on vacation when January 6th happened. So I just wasn't able to comment on that in a timely manner. So I'm finally getting around to that. And there's been a little bit of time. We can assess it from a bit more of a distance. So maybe it's just as well that we waited a little bit. But it's not just that. I I really want to talk about the situation, the political situation that we're in right now. There's a lot to be said about it. And so I've invited Dan McCarthy to come back and talk to us about it. Dan, of course, is editor-at-large of the American Conservative, but right now editor of Modern Age, which I urge you to check out at modernagejournal.com. He writes a great column for The Spectator here in the U.S. It's just tremendous, his column. And I want to uh, get his thoughts about what's going on. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Tom. Delighted to be here. I was out of town, as I've told folks, on January 6th. I spent a week in the U.S. Virgin Islands just wanting to be able to vacation somewhere you know, that would allow me in. And since it is part of the United States, it's not actually that hard to go and vacation there. And it was a nice place to be, let's say. But boy, it was an eventful day, January 6th. And the thing is, I had podcast episodes already recorded that were being released on time to keep people getting their episodes while I was on vacation. But they must have seemed completely out of touch given what was happening in the country, you know? So I haven't, at this point, I still haven't really talked about what happened on that day. And I don't want to devote an episode to that, really, because I think everybody has pretty much said what they want to say about it. But we are talking right now, you and I, about just the present state of things. And I think it's hard to discuss that without reference to this. Now, what is your takeaway from what happened on that day? Well, um, you know, throughout the Trump years, we have seen uh, his opponents in the media. I mean, I can't even say critics because they're clearly sort of media figures who parrot uh, the lines of the Democratic Party activists. But you've seen the media, you know, take anything that happens in the Trump years, beginning with the whole Russia collusion storyline, and turn it into a narrative that is basically a weapon to use against not only Donald Trump, but against all Republicans, against all conservatives, against every non-leftist. And that's exactly what's happening again this time. Donald Trump, you know, there are several things I disagree with Trump about in terms of the things he did that led up to the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol by protesters. I, you know, think that Thomas Massey and people like that were completely correct to point out that, you know, there's nothing that Congress can or should be doing after the Electoral College votes to try to undo the vote or call it into question. Even if something has gone, you know, amiss with the Electoral College vote at that point, the Constitution doesn't provide any remedy for that. It is the Electoral College that decides the presidential election's outcome. And so I think Donald Trump was wrong to say that you should have a gathering on January 6th to call upon Congress to you know, not certify the Electoral College results and then to try to reopen the Electoral College um, question or to try to send the election to, the, um, to Congress or anything like that. I think all of that was out of line. However, people do in fact have a First Amendment right to advocate things that are, you know, bad ideas. They also have a First Amendment right to gather, to assemble, and they have a, an absolute right, you know, in the First Amendment, but also, you know, as the basis of American government overall, 
to lobby Congress and to um, you know put pressure on their elected representatives. That's the whole point of representative government. That is the whole point of the American system of government. So in calling for people to gather and to make their voices heard and to peacefully and patriotically put pressure on Congress and to lobby Congress uh, on this, you know, sort of uh, nearby the Capitol, that all is, is completely legitimate. And it may be, you know, that the issue that's at heart there is not legitimate, the idea that you can undo the Electoral College, but the idea of a protest, the idea of making your voices heard, the idea of trying to influence your Congress people, all of that putting political pressure on them is completely legitimate, completely appropriate. And the words that Donald Trump spoke to the uh, people who gathered to hear him that day, that morning, were, again, calling for peaceful and patriotic voicing of views. He said you have to keep fighting, of course, but people use the term fight, you know, usually in politics to mean fight for the issues you believe in, fight for your principles. It does not mean go out and brawl. When the Democrats and progressives have uh, campaigns to raise the minimum wage and they call it a fight for 15, they're not saying, you know, get together a band of thugs and go out and punch people until they give you $15. So progressives, leftists, people in the media who, you know, have establishment points of view and really want to um, destroy any kind of opposition to the establishment, when all of them go out there and say that Donald Trump incited violence and was, you know, speaking in terms of um, trying to get people to actually physically intimidate Congress, I think that is, first of all, factually inaccurate. And second of all, I think that is driven by a political agenda. Now, if you gather, you know, 10,000 people or however many number it was, you know, at a politically hypercharged moment, which is what Donald Trump did, it's not surprising if, you know, a small fraction of those people, and it looks to me like maybe 200 or 300 people, go wild and go out of control. And so you had a small, I mean, you Throughout the summer, you had this idea of mostly peaceful protests, right? You'd have ongoing riots and arson and looting and other things. But the media was always very careful to say, well, you know what? The rioters and the looters are in the minority. This is a mostly peaceful protest. Well, on January 6th, you had tens of thousands of people supporting Donald Trump peacefully. And then you had you know, uh, a couple of hundred who did not remain peaceful, who invaded the Capitol building, who battled police, who killed at least one police officer, got one of their own uh, numbers killed. Uh, injured and numerous police. These people are criminals. They need to be prosecuted. They need to be charged. Uh, they are not representative of Donald Trump's supporters, and they're not representative even of the crowds who gathered on January 6th. Now, regarding you know Trump and the impeachment process, which is happening right now, it seems to me that, I mean, first of all, it's a joke. I mean, they can't impeach Donald Trump before he actually leaves office. The whole point of impeachment is precisely to remove a president from office. So the Senate's going to vote on removal on a guy who's not even there. I think that is constitutionally uh, nonsense, but we'll see what happens. But it seems to me that people who make this claim, who say that impeachment is legitimate, and what Donald Trump is being impeached on is precisely a charge of inciting insurrection. Both incitement and insurrection are very serious crimes. If Donald Trump, if they really believe that Donald Trump is guilty of those crimes, they should not be impeaching him. They should be calling for him to be criminally charged after he leaves office. And I will bet dollars to donuts that that is not going to happen. Because the fact is, it's very cynical. They don't actually believe that there was legitimate, bona fide criminal incitement going on here. They just want to humiliate Donald Trump. They want to drive a wedge into the Republican Party between people who are so aghast at what happened on January 6th that they are abandoning Trump and people who are still standing by Trump. They want to basically uh, sort of re-empower the neoconservative Cheney wing of the Republican Party. And of course, uh, Liz Cheney was one of the 10 Republicans who voted for impeaching Donald Trump this time. And uh, we're going to see 
whether the U.S. Senate, when the uh, you know when the issue goes to trial, whether you have a stronger representation of neoconservative opinion in the Senate than you did in the in the House among the Republicans. And with someone like you know Mitt Romney in the Senate, I think you're certainly going to have him voting for uh, you know um, for conviction. Uh, I think you'll have Lisa Murkowski and uh, uh, you know Susan Collins and other people like that voting for conviction. I suspect conviction is not going to happen. I think the they probably do not have the numbers. Mitch McConnell is personally very ticked off at the way Donald Trump has treated him. He blames Trump for losing uh, two Senate seats in Georgia and costing Republicans a Senate majority. So um, McConnell may very well vote for conviction, although I kind of tend to doubt it at the end of the day. So it's going to be you know a very uh, you know eventful few weeks here. And of course, it's going to completely distract from Joe Biden's uh, agenda as he first takes office. And uh, you know the idea that uh, Joe Biden's agenda of getting the country back on the kind of track that Biden's voters want is the most important thing in the country is clearly not the case if you're Nancy Pelosi. It's clearly not the case if you're the media, because all of them are far more interested still in Donald Trump than they are in actually putting the emphasis on governing. And I think that speaks volume, that Donald Trump is the only thing holding together the Democratic Party and holding together giving basically a corrupt and discredited establishment a fig leaf of legitimacy because you have this man who's been you know, turned into an ogre by the media as uh, the sort of demon uh, who has to be you know, sort of opposed. And in opposing him, you obviously have to support the establishment. They present that as being the only alternative to Trumpism at its very worst. What was your reaction to his being dumped by Twitter? Well, I wasn't surprised. And I have to tell you, I mean, uh, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So Twitter, you have, you know, got a lot of um, value out of having Donald Trump as, uh, you know, a personality on their their uh, social network. They've decided that, you know, they don't find him valuable anymore. And so they've dumped him. And I'm not defending that as a business decision. And I certainly wouldn't defend it as a, uh, you know, as a matter of free speech and sort of good public discourse. You know, on both of those grounds, especially on the question of, you know, allowing for a free airing of opinion, I think Twitter has done something absolutely shameful and disgusting. But again, I am not surprised. And I expect social networks will continue to be more and more meddlesome, more and more controlling in the days and weeks and months and years to come. So um, I think this was going to happen sooner or later. And I think that um, there really is a need for alternatives. Of course, the sort of knee-jerk, you know, sort of um, beltway libertarian line as well. If you don't like Twitter, build your own social network. Okay, so some people did build their own social network. They tried to build this thing called Parler. And what happened? Well, uh, Amazon, uh, you know, decided they weren't going to provide servers for Parler. And uh, Apple decided it wasn't going to allow uh, Parler to have uh, access to the uh, Apple Store. So now it has to be, okay, so build your own competitor to Apple and your own competitor to Amazon, as well as your own competitor to Twitter. Well, okay, um, you know, maybe, maybe people can try that. It's, it's then going to go to the next stage, which will be, well, uh, we're going to have the payment processing, um, you know, Visa and uh, other companies are just going to stop processing payments for you. So you're going to have to build your own financial network. So what that's going to do, of course, will drive people to Bitcoin and other alternatives. So, you know, I mean, that may uh, wind up being for the best, but it's going to be um, a pretty rocky time. And people who claim that we need to bring the country together and that we need more faith in our mainstream institutions are doing exactly the opposite of what they should be doing, because what they're doing is excluding such large numbers of people that they are necessarily building a kind of alternative community within a community here. Well, the way I think about it is, even though obviously these are huge challenges that people with dissident thoughts are facing, when, you're, when you have 70, 80 million people who are willing to do the opposite 
of what they have been urged to do for four years by every respectable outlet you can possibly imagine, and they still do it, that's an entrepreneurial opportunity for somebody, even though it is going to be a lot of work to lay the, the foundation and the infrastructure for it. That's way too many customers to just let sit there and not get services. You know, so it seems like there's got to be something, ultimately. That's right. But, you know, there, there is a, a – it's not symmetrical, right? It's not when, – when all these social networks begin, all of these tech companies, they are happy to embrace a kind of Wild West ethos. They welcome everybody, you know. And, in fact, that's why they succeed in the beginning is because some of the most heavily involved, you know, the most heavy engagement users are precisely people who have non-mainstream views. So when one of these social companies, social networks or other tech companies get started, uh, you can think of YouTube again, you know, YouTube – uh, at the beginning, had a very sort of um, loose attitude towards copyright. They were, you know, letting people put up things, and it really ticked off the Motion Picture Association and the Recording uh, Artists Association. Were really mad that you know uh, YouTube had all of this copyrighted material on YouTube, but it brought in a lot of eyeballs, and eventually YouTube became a major player. With the social networks, what they do is they, you know, sort of allow people with all opinions to come to Facebook and Twitter as they're getting started. But then once they've built up critical mass, once they have market leadership and they have a network effect supporting them, and it's very hard to start, you know, sort of a competing social network because basically, you know, everything occupies one niche and it becomes the forum for um, other services. It's, it's like a kind of infrastructure. Um, once they have that kind of market power, they then begin, well, what happens is you have um, activists within the company, within not even necessarily at the CEO level and things like that or at the board level, but uh, you know, sort of shot throughout the, the company, you have these middle managers who are you know, sort of indoctrinated by uh, you know, gender theory and political correctness in college. And they start saying, well, you know, we, we're very unhappy as un employees of this company uh, unless you start restricting uh, the speech uh, rights and restricting the speech privileges of the participants in, in this uh, social network. So basically, you have these middle managers dictating what the uh, limits of speech are going to be on the social networks. And at that point, the social networks are so big, they can, ex they can afford to exclude uh, people that they decide to demonize and target and uh, you know, sort of um, you know, throw out beyond the pale of conversation. Um, so it's very hard because then if you want to start a competing network against these companies, you only have, you, know, you can't start from the universal uh, sort of appeal that the social networks have at the beginning where they're going both for the mainstream and for the you know, dissident views. Instead, you just have the dissident views as your starting point. And I think that's much harder to get started from. So you're right, there's a very large audience here, which a you know, successful entrepreneur will be able to tap into. But it may not be as large as the audiences that the big social networks went for in the first place. The other problem here, and this I think was, was illustrated by what we saw on January 6th, is that there is just a lot of emotion and a lot of entropy on the part of the people who are very unhappy with the establishment and with the system, there's not a lot of, you know, I mean, thank God there was not a lot of organization that was effective in terms of breaking into the capital. But even in terms of the good part of the audience, the much larger law-abiding part of the crowds that came to support Donald Trump on the 6th, I just don't see that there's much institutional apparatus there or in infrastructure or sense of organization that can lead to anything. And I, I'm afraid that this market, you know, becomes vulnerable to a lot of uh, con artists and snake oil salesmen and grifters. So that, I think, is one of the big challenges for this wonderful, great movement uh, that has formed. Is it able to kind of become uh, more disciplined, more self-disciplined, 
more organized and to generate a few institutions of some kind that can lead it in a responsible and effective manner? Or is it always going to be about um, people just sort of um, expressing their unhappiness and their anger, but not actually achieving anything and, uh, you know, not even understanding how the electoral college works or how the constitution works? Um, you know, some of the, some basic points of civic literacy really would have helped us out uh, in this whole sort of post-election phase. I have to ask you about your Spectator article. I'm going to link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1816 about 2024. Now, it could well be that Donald Trump himself decides to run again. I understand the argument for that, that he's not the type to back down from a challenge and he wants revenge and this and that. On the other hand, four years of not having to endure what he just endured might make him say, to heck with it, you people can have it. I'll just endorse somebody instead. So let's talk about that. But I also want to know what happens to the Trump people. I mean, obviously, there is a major segment of the Republican Party that thinks they're dispensable or can be treated with contempt. So what do you think the future holds? Well, one of the ironies here is that by throwing Donald Trump off of Twitter and by attacking all of his companies and by trying to basically destroy him as a private citizen, the left is actually almost guaranteeing that Donald Trump will have to remain in politics and may have to run again in 2024. Because what else is he going to do, right? I mean, his golf courses, his real estate empire, all of these things are under political attack by the left, by everyone who despises Donald Trump. The only thing that's left to him is to go into politics again and to try to, you know, sort of reclaim his name and reclaim his legacy by winning back the White House in 2024. Now, that doesn't mean that I think he's certain to run. Um, you know, one of the things that I noticed going back to the, the 2020 campaign was that um, in 2024, Donald Trump will only be the same age as Joe Biden is right now. So it seemed to me that if people were willing to accept Joe Biden, you know, he's now 78, uh, as a candidate for president in 2020, then there was no reason to exclude the idea that Donald Trump could be a candidate in 2024. That said, um, I do think it's a bad idea to keep having, you know, presidential candidates who are that old. And uh, who knows what Donald Trump's personal health will be like in 2024. And who knows whether there will be a reaction against um, uh, Joe Biden's own decrepitude. Um, so if, if Trump is still vigorous in 2024, I think it's a very real possibility. If he seems really diminished by four years, uh, then perhaps not. Um, I'm sorry, uh, what was the other part of your question there, Tom? Well, leaving aside Trump himself, I mean, let, let's imagine that there is no Trump in 2024. Maybe he, let's say he drops dead. What happens in 2024? I mean, there will be some Republicans who are going to act like there never was a Trump or we can just pretend this whole episode never occurred. Somebody's going to want to grab the Trump mantle, plausibly or otherwise. What do you think it looks like? What happens to these voters who are treated with, with thinly veiled contempt by much of the party establishment? Well, that's part of the problem I was alluding to earlier. Just as I don't think you have sort of, um, you know, outside of politics, entrepreneurs and nonprofit organizations that are really sufficiently in tune with and providing good leadership to Trump supporters, even within politics, I don't see any, you know, sort of natural, obvious heir to Donald Trump. Maybe Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, has been trying hardest to uh, fill that position. Um, outside of politics, you know, I think if uh, Tucker Carlson wanted to run for president, he could do it. Everyone I talk to privately who knows Tucker tells me that he's very reluctant to and that he really, you know, isn't seriously considering it. So um, I, you know, there is an opportunity there. But again, uh, what entrepreneur, what political entrepreneur 
is going to take advantage of it is very much an open question. And of course, what you're seeing right now is that um, anyone in the Senate, certainly, and also in the House who tried to support Donald Trump over the past uh, several weeks is also being demonized and deplatformed. So you've seen attacks on Paul Hawley and, um, and Ted Cruz. Hawley sometimes gets ahead of his skis, I would say. He's, he's someone who kind of throws a lot of things against the wall, and some of the things he does throw against the wall, I think, are very unwise. Um, but Hawley, I think, um, you know, is really dedicated to trying to make something out of Trump's uh, point of view, um, especially uh, even on things like foreign policy. I think Hawley, you know, he, um, he has some votes on Yemen that I didn't like, but he's also said some of the right things on uh, Afghanistan, for example. So I, I have some hopes for, uh, for Josh Hawley. Ted Cruz, you know, I, I have various reservations about Ted Cruz, but, um, you know, he's, uh, he's certainly not worse than, you know, most of the other Republicans out there. And he's far, far better than the whole uh, Liz Cheney uh, faction of the party. But that's the other problem, though, is that, you know, throughout the um, 2000s, 2000s and 2010s, for that matter, you had a Republican Party which was, you know, kind of on the center right at the grassroots uh, that had, you know, plenty of conservative and libertarian views at the grassroots. And yet it was led by neocons who were, you know, they had a sort of cultural veneer of being slightly center right. But in practice, they would go along with the left on just about anything. And, you know, if you think about this, I mean, just think about how far out of touch with the Republican Party base people like George W. Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney really were. I mean, these, these are guys who never should have been the nominees for a party that had the politics of the Republican Party's grassroots. Uh, but the neocons were very, very effective at gaining control of the elite layer of the Republican Party, and then uh, using that layer to steer the party. And then voters wouldn't have any choice uh, come November. It would either be you know, a Republican who was basically a neocon, or it would be uh, a Democrat who would be you know, at least as bad as the neocons on pretty much everything. And so uh, conservatives at that point would just go along and vote for, you know, a Mitt Romney or vote for a John McCain. So I think we may try to, we, I mean, certainly the elite Republicans are trying to return us to that world. They're trying to erase the last four years. They're trying to promote Dick Cheney's daughter to the leader of, you know, uh, the House of Representatives. And they're trying to, um, you know, pump up people like uh, Mitt Romney and uh, various other, and, you know, Nikki Haley seems to have a, an enormous amount of neocon support. So I think there's, you know, some um, some threats here to, even though the Republican Party has a a, um, a very strong pro-Trump base, a sort of populist base, a base that is nationalist in the sort of um, patriotic sense, nevertheless, uh, the neocons are much more effective in terms of organization and elite management. Uh, Donald Trump was able to completely destroy them, or at least uh, throw them out for the time being, you know, in, 2000, in 2016. Uh, you know, he defied all of their organizing, all of their sort of polished candidates. Another Trump-like figure could do that again in 2024, but I don't know exactly who that will be, and I do know that the neocons are going to be formidable once again. Hey, everybody, let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, sometimes I joke about how the Tom Woods Show improves your life. Well, this is really, really going to improve your life. I feel sure there are some of you out there who struggle with depression or anxiety or you're stressed or there's some stupid head in your family you can't cope with or there's some grief you can't overcome. Any number of problems that might disturb your tranquility and happiness. And if you think I'm talking to you, I probably am. Well, why continue to suffer? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. This is not self-help, it's professional counseling. You can schedule regular video or phone sessions, all from the comfort of your own home. It's convenient, professional, 
and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com woods. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash woods. I read somewhere that according to sources within the administration, Jared Kushner intervened to stop Trump from joining Gab or Parler. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know that he hasn't joined. And I also know that I, frankly, am kind of curious to know what's going through his mind right now. And it's not as easy to find that out as it would be otherwise. What do you think? And also, his son seems to be hinting, uh, Don Jr. seems to be hinting that something's coming, like maybe they're putting together their own social network. Do you have any insight into any of that? I don't. Um, You know, I think you have to, you know, the whole Trump operation would have to look very carefully at, um, you know, Parler and certainly Gab. You know, I I have to say, I mean, you know, I got onto Parler pretty soon after it launched. I found the you know, sort of interface and just using the the social network to be rather awkward. Um, I didn't find that the social network was really all that high quality. And it seems, you know, I've heard various stories, I don't know how true they are, that um, Parler was also not very um, good about keeping its data safe. So that, um, you know, there are now claims that, you know, a lot of things that people thought were private on Parler have now been sort of um, hacked or leaked or otherwise uh, made available. So I think you have to be very careful with all these social networks, especially with the security aspect of them. Um, Gab has been, you know, much smarter than Parler in terms of having its own operation. It seems to own its own servers. Um, but I have to say, you know, I, I looked at Gab just the other day to see, okay, what is this alternative to the other social networks? And sure enough, I mean, Gab illustrates the problem of trying to start a new social network use, uh, with the people who have been thrown out of the others, because the first people who get thrown out, of course, often are the craziest people. Yeah, so, I know, so you, I know. So the first people you see, you know, when you have guys with swastikas in their, uh, you know, sort of um, profile pictures and stuff, I mean, that just, you know, immediately tells you um, this is not a family-friendly place. This is not a place for, you know, normal people. Now, that's not to say that, you know, all Gab users are like that. I have no idea. But I know that, you know, just a sort of casual glance at it um, was certainly, um, you know, it looked pretty fringy. So, and, and not just fringy, but, you know, Sort of, it looked like something that the left could easily point to and say, aha, this is what all those 73 million Trump voters are really like. And I don't want that to be something that the left can easily do. They're going to do it anyway, but make it as hard on them as possible. So I'm, I'm rather skeptical of the value of Gab. I mentioned recently on one of these episodes a tweet of mine. Now, I, I, like you, I have my things about Trump make me crazy. Particularly, we all know he brought on people he should never have brought on. Any sensible person that he cared to listen to would have told him not to bring those people on. And also, you know, I don't, his ideology is not mine, but I am sympathetic to some of what he thinks. And I'm sympathetic to some of what the Trump folks, they, a lot of them are just regular Americans. They don't read political theory. They, they, just, they just feel surrounded. That's, that's the thing. They feel like they're surrounded. They feel that every opinion molding center and every influential institution just hates them with a passion. And how can you blame them? I mean, it's even the churches can't stand them. And so they feel like, rightly or wrongly, this was a guy who understood that, that you, yes, you are surrounded, but I'm going to stand up for you. I think that's what they, 
we're looking at here. I, I think that's what they saw in him. So first of all, do you, do you agree? I mean, isn't that more or less what he represented was I'm the guy who you can in effect uh, count on to stand up for you against the world. That's right. Donald Trump was able to show, you know, uh, and this is why Donald Trump, you know, uh, in uh, November of 2020, got the largest, you know, voter turnout of any Republican presidential candidate in history. It's precisely because he gave millions of Americans who felt disenfranchised, who felt despised, deplored, and neglected, a sense that, you know, not only was he someone who understood them and who in some ways, you know, had a viewpoint that was similar to theirs, but also Donald Trump showed that you can fight back. You can actually defy the establishment. You can defeat, you know, Jeb Bush. You can defeat Hillary Clinton. And uh, you can take on the deep state. You can take on, you know, all of these institutions which basically try to dictate what's permissible to think, what's permissible to say, and uh, control your life, you know, in a thousand different small and large ways. Unfortunately, you know, Donald Trump, you know, also illustrated the weakness of his movement as well as its strengths. Um, because Donald Trump, you know, again, didn't have a sense of organization. He didn't really know how government worked. He wasn't really going to turn to the people who did have that experience, at least not at first. Now, towards the end of his administration, he did, in fact, you know, um, get things together and you were, you were having much better appointments, you know, in terms of personnel. And there was a better, you know, agenda coming together that would have been fantastic in the second term. But um, it took four years to get to that point. Uh, and in the first several years, you know, basically Donald Trump, I mean, one of the odd and interesting things here, Donald Trump is a brilliant coalition politician. And he understood that in becoming the leader of the Republican Party, he was the leader of a coalition. And so he tried in very good faith to give the establishment, you know, a certain amount of um, influence within his administration, uh, including, you know, of course, making Rince Priebus, who had been the, um, you know, chairman of the Republican National Committee, making him, you know, uh, the first chief of staff for the administration. Uh, Donald Trump would, you know, put in, uh, you know, Republican hacks in various uh, different levels. And of course, this, you know, sort of um, political defeat in uh, January, where you had uh, Kelly Loeffler and uh, David Perdue get defeated in the uh, Georgia uh, runoff election. Well, look, neither of those people was a, you know, real Trump Republican, a populist. Um, uh, instead, those were basically establishment Republican types who Donald Trump supported because he made, you know, a, an alliance with these folks. And uh, that was disastrous. I mean, you, you really have to, if you're going to take on the establishment, you have to, you know, uh, really look to replace it. You, you cannot, you know, sort of try to, uh, you know, put in, uh, you know, your John Boltons and, uh, you know, your sort of uh, hackish Republican office holders and uh, expect that you're going to get any good results from that. So Trump himself needed to have uh, more of a program and more of a sense of correct personnel than he had in that first term. It's one reason, though, I do think that uh, if he if he does run again in 2024, uh, you could see a very different, a very much more effective uh, Trump administration in four years from now. Well, the reason I started to bring that up, I was getting to, uh, I'll have this be our last question, but, and it's not really a question, it's just I want you to reflect on it out loud. The tweet that I put out said something like this, that when we think ahead to what the history books are going to look like when they deal with the years 2016 to 2020, it's going to be ridiculous. It's going to be laughable. And I say this, as I say, as somebody who was driven crazy by Trump half the time. But I also believe in the truth. And I believe Russiagate is phony. And the, 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 the very fine people thing is phony. And there are a lot of things that, you know, he, he mocked uh, disabled people. That's all phony. 
it's, it's just one phony thing after another. And the, the history textbooks are going to be full of the phoniness, the, the COVID thing. And if only we had locked down sooner, we wouldn't have had the, the deaths. And it, it'll just be absolute unremitting propaganda with not a single fact or single genuinely true thing in it. And we all know that. I mean, you know it as well as I do. That's exactly what the history book's going to look like. And now we also know that the history books, you know, are, are kind of propagandistic. And if I were to read about Ronald Reagan, I would probably get a distorted view of Ronald Reagan. But this is, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen when the, the historians, so-called, look at these years. So we live in a society where it's an absolute guarantee that that chapter in that history textbook is going to be nothing but propaganda and easily debunked claims. I don't have a question here. I'm just saying that. What do we think about this? Well, I think there's going to be... So, you know, my view is that Donald Trump is a manifestation of a declining uh, post-Cold War establishment. And I don't believe that the election of Joe Biden will reinvigorate uh, that establishment. It seems to me that all of this sort of um, the idea that we can go on doing the things we've been doing in terms of, you know, leftist ideas just destroying the very idea that, you know, of human nature, of, the, of men and women. You know, it's now meant to be a social construct that you have men and women. <laughs> I mean, conservatives, I have to say, you know, I, I thought when you had uh, conservatives, you know, and I, I agreed with the case against gay marriage, but I thought, well, it's not really going to lead to anything, you know, that crazy because, you know, you only have a rather small number of uh, homosexuals in the country. The number of them who want to get married is very small. It's, it's just not that big of a deal. And I was wrong about that because it turns out that um, this was, you know, a wedge which has continued to expand. And now the very idea that there is, you know, that you can talk about, you know, mothers and fathers. Uh, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives has just dictated a new sort of dictionary full of <laughs> full of ungendered sort of language, right? So you can't use words like uh, like mother and father or grandmother and grandfather, uh, son and daughter. It's insane. I mean, it really is crazy. Um, so that keeps getting worse and worse. And, um, you know, you talk about the history books. I think the history books are going to be completely unintelligible. And the history books are going to be, look like, you know, a history book from the Brezhnev-era Soviet Union. People are going to look at this and say, this is all bullshit. I mean, you can't believe a word of it. So I don't think, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always amused when I hear all of these uh, very sort of uncritically minded conformist liberals say, oh, the history books are going to judge you so harshly. No, your history books are going to be so terrible that they will be a laughingstock. And um, as a result, people are probably, you know, yes, all the, everything that, that appears about Donald Trump in those history books will be a lie. Because everything else in the history books is also going to be a lie. People are going to believe the opposite of whatever the history books say. And of course, this is exactly what's happening right now. This is why you have things like QAnon. It's why you have things like, uh, you know, the big gathering for Donald Trump on January 6th. Uh, you have liberals, you know, left liberals deploring this. And they say, oh, it's terrible that people don't care about facts. It's terrible that people don't care about reality. Well, my God, you know, who is most responsible for destroying reality, for de denying truth? And for saying that there are no facts, there's only political, you know, correctness. Um, boy, oh boy, you know, that's exactly what the textbooks have been doing for a long time. It's what the mainstream media has been doing. It's what the academy has been doing. It's what the Democratic Party and the elite of the Republican Party have been doing. And all of those lies are unsustainable. Eventually, the public just, you know, does exactly what the public did in the former Soviet Union and in the Eastern Bloc at the end of the Cold War. 
people just say, look, okay, we understand we're being ruled by these lunatics. We understand they have this bizarre ideology, but we do not believe a word of it. And we really want to have a change. We want to bring down all of these lunatics and replace them with something better. And unfortunately, it's very hard to replace them with something really good because once you've destroyed the inheritance of your civilization, once you've destroyed things like traditional religion and, you know, I mean, the family is a natural thing, but it is also something that is reinforced by its institutional um, uh, elements, right? So things like marriage, um, you know, it's not that they exist in a state of nature, but they are things that help to reinforce and strengthen uh, the natural elements of human sexuality. Once you've destroyed all of those, you know, sort of rich inherent inheritances of our, you know, sort of Christian, our classical, our, you know, sort of early modern American traditions, and you, you've just obliterated all of that, you can't reinvent that stuff in, a, in an evening. You can't bring that back, in, back together, you know, in the span of a few years or, you know, a, a few decades even. So I think we're in for some, you know, very interesting times you're not going to see the uh, left liberal establishment succeed and be able to keep up the uh, you know, illusion they've created. You're going to see a return to reality. But that return to reality is unfortunately you know, going to be very rough because you know, it's hard to reestablish these traditions, these old ways of thinking, uh, these old values, and these old institutions uh, once you've uh, severed yourself from, from the course of history. Well, we're going to leave the discussion there, and I will recommend that people, first of all, you should read your Spectator column. Jeez, I, do I enjoy that. But you are editor of Modern Age. ModernAgeJournal.com is the website. The venerable journal founded by Russell Kirk, many decades in existence, and really top-notch minds write for it. So I hope people will check it out. And Dan, once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tom. May I put in a quick plug for a couple of things uh, coming Please up in, do. in modern age? So I would be delighted. We have just sent our uh, winter 2021 uh, issue of the print magazine to the press. Uh, modern age is still published uh, as a print publication uh, on a quarterly basis. And uh, and I think, you'll, I think subscribers or potential subscribers will find that... Um, that's really the best way to enjoy this journal because it's a serious journal. It's old-fashioned. Uh, it's something that, again, I think helps to connect people with uh, the sense of tradition and the sense of appreciation for time and the investment of time in something that's serious and rich as opposed to the uh, sort of fleetingness and uh, casual approach that people tend to have when they read something on the web. So I would urge people to subscribe to Modern Age in print. Uh, we have some extremely good uh, essays coming up in this uh, winter 2021 issue that'll be out in a few weeks. Uh, we have uh, Scott Yanor, who's a professor at Boise State University, writing about how conservatives underestimated some of the damage that feminism would do to um, uh, traditional institutions. And uh, Yanor actually talks about this very theme that we've kind of ended on, which is a lot of conservatives, including people like Phyllis Schlafly, who understood that you know feminism was uh, could be taken to very dangerous extremes, they nonetheless thought that you know human nature would always be enough to stop the farthest excesses of, uh, you know, the radical feminists. And they proved to be mistaken because it turns out that you really do need to have a lot of social support for human nature. Otherwise, you know, the more sort of degenerate aspects of it will proliferate and cause, you know, um, social disorder and, um, and also psychological disorder, right? I mean, very clearly, a lot of the despair and anxiety that people feel in these ages have a great deal to do with the fact that their human nature is no longer uh, institutionally supported. It's now actually contradicted and opposed by the institutions we've created. So I think this Scott Yaner essay is really very provocative. People won't necessarily agree with every point in it, but I think they'll find it a very, uh, you know, it changes their way of thinking and, and forces them to engage uh, with some very uh, powerful arguments. 
Uh, we also have an essay about by a, a professor talking about uh, the Aeneid, uh, the wonderful uh, Roman epic written by uh, Virgil. And uh, this is really making a very powerful case that uh, peace is uh, the very uh, essential theme uh, behind the Aeneid. And so uh, those uh, you know listeners who are interested in in classical uh, ideas and li- interested in uh, you know the great literature of the West will I think find this essay very encouraging and something that uh, is well worth applying to our own times. So overall, I would just very much uh, urge uh, listeners to the Tom Woods podcast to visit uh, modernagejournal.com and to uh, subscribe to the print magazine, uh, which again is quarterly, which I think uh, people will find there's just uh, a kind of depth of engagement you get by reading something in print that is uh, an incomparably uh, elevating experience. I agree completely. I vastly prefer it. I read way too many articles online. But then when I'm holding something in my hands, I don't know, I'm leaning back in my chair, no computer on, no devices anywhere near me. Ah, I don't know. I just enjoy it. So, uh, But particularly when it's something as uh, stimulating as modern age. So I hope people will check that out. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks, Tom. All right, folks, before we wrap up for today, I want to share portions of an email I received from somebody. And it has to do with a conversation I had on this program with Michael Malice. And we were talking about writing. And we were sharing our thoughts and strategies and how we do our writing. It's kind of a meta episode. And I think at one point I said that when it comes to fiction writing, I really don't know how to guide people. It's just completely different. I don't know anything about the publishing world when it comes to fiction. I don't know how to craft fiction the right way. I just don't know anything about it. And I get people asking me writing advice because I've written a dozen books, but I can help some people with nonfiction writing, but with fiction, I just don't know what to tell people. So I got this email and it just lifted my spirits today. So anyway, let me share this email with you. It goes like this. I first want to say thank you for all you do and the example that you set. I'm brand new to the libertarian world, so to speak. I discovered you through your podcast, originally hearing your interviews on other liberty and freedom-minded podcasts. The last six months have been like a great awakening for me. At the same time, I also feel like I'm going through a divorce, having realized I was essentially blue-pilled for most of my life. There seemed to be a central theme running throughout the podcast that I was listening to over the fall. The frustration was apparent in all of them, from you, Dave Smith, Thaddeus Russell, Brett Vinat, Pete Canonas, etc., that regular people are just not getting the message. On the flip side of that, a lot of my anger over my ignorance was because I had not been exposed to these ideas and ways of thinking. I considered myself an intelligent person. I have a master's degree, have always strived to get my news and information from intelligent, peer-reviewed sources. Setting aside that I now realize my media consumption was one of the largest problems, I've always been a very anti-establishment individual who strives to flourish outside of the regular norms, especially in politics. So where was the disconnect? I will also tell you that over the last year, I've finally stepped into my true calling as a fiction writer. I wrote and self-published three novels from May 2020 to November 2020. The decision changed my life. It was then that I felt a need to help as many other reluctant writers, such as myself, to finally claim their right. So I started the Claim Your Right, W-R-I-T-E, podcast. I also put together a small course to help new or rusty fiction writers get their ideas plotted out and start writing their story slash series as soon as possible. I was finishing up the editing on that course when I heard your interview with Michael Malice on publishing. In it, you mentioned you have a lot of listeners who ask you about fiction writing. A bell went off in my head as I now have something for your listeners. More importantly, I came to another discovery while listening to your interview with Michael Malice. I believe that his idea of writing a novel like Ayn Rand's is excellent. 
And from what I've heard from him, I believe if anyone could write a novel to rival The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, it would be him. But I firmly believe that is not enough. I believe we need as many aspects of creative expression, be that books, movies, TV shows, music, like the musician you interviewed as well. And I think the lack of liberty and freedom-minded cultural forms of entertainment is where some of that disconnect lies. The liberty-loving people I've heard over the last six months are some of the most intelligent people I've ever heard. But the argument I kept hearing was that all the liberals or normies make all their decisions based on emotion, and then all the liberty-minded people would give them all these reasons why they were wrong, and there's the disconnect. We're trying to change somebody's mind. We need to try and change their hearts. In my course, I talk about one of the fundamentals of good storytelling and fiction writing, namely to show rather than tell. So while the intellectual aspects of freedom and liberty we learn on all the wonderful podcasts are essential, I believe it may be difficult for people to transform that into their own lives on a practical level. And so, for example, watching a serial show every week where people are living free lives every day as a story is unfolding could influence people in ways that intellectually debating about principles of liberty cannot. So that's an excerpt of the note that I got from Christine Holloway. Now, Christine is spelled in an unusual way. Christine, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-E, and Holloway, H-O-L-L-O-W-A-Y. So she has a website, christineholloway.com. So it's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-E-H-O-L-L-O-W-A-Y.com. And that's where her course is available for all you would-be fiction writers. Now, I have no affiliate relationship with her. I don't earn any money off this course. But I just like, this is the kind of thing I want to see us doing more of because we have plenty of books on economics and a lot of other things, but we're really, really bad at this. So her course is called The Right Blueprint, W-R-I-T-E. I will put this on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1816. But if you do wind up picking up her course, use the special coupon code WOODS10, and the price of the course comes all the way down to just 10 smackers. But you got to use the coupon code WOODS10. I love when I encounter somebody who's passionate about something I couldn't do if I had 10 lifetimes. And that's what we have here. So christineholloway.com, go check that out. And come on back and listen to the Tom Woods Show again tomorrow. See you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free. And we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.